Lord, what a wonderful thing that you have not remained aloof or distant or silent, but that you would draw near to every seeking heart. And what a wonderful thing, Lord, that we can actually interact with you and respond to you and draw near to you. And Lord, we've been singing this song, I give you my heart, I give you my soul. And Lord, when we do that, then you have freedom to work in us, to pour your blessings upon us, to lead us and guide us and direct us. And so that's our prayer today, Lord. Have your way. Have your own way, Lord, in us and through us for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning to you. We're beginning a new message series today, and we're going to end this new message series next week. This is a little unusual for us. Two-week message series called God and Culture. And uh, these messages will also, I hope, help prepare us for our next message series, which is a little longer, six-week series called God and the Movies. Okay? So we want to kind of talk a little bit about our relationship to culture and how do we relate to culture. The first thing I want to say is that the world in the West today, in the U.S., in our country, is very different than when I was growing up. I grew up in California, and I was thinking about this, how much the culture has shifted. For example, when my dad was teaching me how to drive, I mean, I did take driver's training in school, but my dad also gave me some private lessons. You remember, he wanted me to learn how to drive a stick shift, and back then we used to have a Dodge Dart that was called Three on the Column. Any of you remember that? Anyway, the way the culture has changed is when my dad would take me out driving, we used to go on Sunday afternoons to the mall. You know why? The parking lot of the mall was empty on Sundays because the stores were closed. Can you believe that? For some of you, that's unimaginable, right? That's your big shopping day or whatever. But when I was growing up, the religious climate in the U.S. was vastly different. Um, Christians could assume back then that most people were familiar with Christianity, that knew something about the facts of the Bible and, and Jesus. Uh, they may or may not have been Christians, but a lot, most people kind of felt like they went to church or they attended a church or at least they affiliated themselves with a church, even though they may not have gone that often. Uh, most people believed in God. Back then, I think about 95% of the American population said they believed in God. And uh, I don't know what it is now, but it's much lower. In fact, most people, I think, sort of base their values on a Judeo-Christian ethic. Often they violated it, but <clears throat> at least they believe certain things were right and certain things were wrong. And when I was growing up in public school in Los Angeles, every day we said the Pledge of Allegiance. How many of you did that when you were growing up? Okay. And, and we used to say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. And then we said these words that are almost like, you know, uh, controversial today. One nation under God. Right? Do you remember that? One nation under God. We would say this in the public schools. Now it's like, oh, don't mention God. Don't mention Jesus. It's not politically correct. It, it might, you know, offend somebody. And so I think we're in a very uh, different kind of environment. Uh, our cultural climate has shifted dramatically, uh, in, in many ways, away from Christian values and away from a Christian worldview. And those of us who name the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our God, uh, those people who are dedicated to following Him are increasingly marginalized in our society and sometimes stigmatized, sometimes ridiculed, often deemed irrelevant. The culture has shifted. Now, how do we cope with the world that cares so little about the truth of Jesus Christ? How do we cope with a world that knows so little about 
Jesus Christ. So that it's becoming increasingly uh, biblically illiterate. You know, like if you watch football on TV and you always see somebody holding up those signs in the crowd that says uh, John 3.16. You know what that means, right? Most of us do. It's a John, the Gospel of John, fourth book in the New Testament, chapter 3, verse 16. And uh, a lot of us even know what it says, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? <clears throat> Nowadays, I wonder what people think when they're watching football and they see that sign up there. What the heck does that mean, right? It's like, uh, I'm trying to find my friend John. He, he's in section three and row 16. Or, you know, it's like, <clears throat> you know, just our whole understanding of issues of faith has shifted and for many people has become irrelevant, totally out of our awareness. And how do we cope, those of us who follow Jesus, with that kind of culture? And how do we find, help other people find God in that culture as well? Now, that's a challenge. It's a big challenge. But I want to say, too, that we can be encouraged because the Apostle Paul, he had to do the same thing, right? He, he spoke largely to Jews. Often when he would arrive in a city, he would go into the synagogue, and, and based on the Old Testament scriptures, he would try to convince the Jewish people and the people that are called God-fearers. They not, may not be Jewish, but they sympathize with Jewish beliefs and Jewish tradition and, and Jewish religion. And he would try to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who fulfilled all those prophecies and passages from the Old Testament. So Paul often would you know, begin ministry in a new city in the synagogue, but then he also would go out to the, what we would call the unchurched, the irreligious people, people who didn't have any uh, Jewish background perhaps, and especially when he comes to a city in Greece called Athens. Now we know Athens, in Paul's time it was one of the great cities of the world, a, a great learning center, a great cultural center, a great religious center, although it was religious idolatry that was really big in, in Athens. Uh, famous philosophers like Socrates had come from, from Athens and, and all of that. And Paul on his missionary journeys, he arrives at Athens. He arrives without his companions. He was traveling at the time with Timothy and Silas, and they're doing mission work together. But um, Paul goes to Athens, and then he, he's there alone, apparently. We don't know how long, but he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him. And I want to pick up this story in Acts chapter 17. Today we're going to look at Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. But I want to start verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, for his his co-workers, his companions, Timothy and Silas, while he's waiting for them in Athens, it's like, oh, I've got a few days of downtime, right? So this is what he does. He goes and he tours the city, and he's looking around, and he's watching and learning and trying to understand this city that he has found himself in. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he first gets there, and it says when he got there, this great center of learning and culture, but Paul is not happy. He's deeply distressed. He's deeply distressed to find this great city is full of idolatry, and he's provoked. You know, the word that's used here where it says Paul was greatly distressed, it's the same word that's used. There's a Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint, and so it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, and in that the Greek word that's used when it says that God was provoked to anger by idolatry, that's the word used here about Paul. That God was provoked to anger by idolatry. The same word is used here to describe Paul. Paul was provoked, greatly distressed, to see that the city was full of idols. It's like his soul revolted at the sight of all this pagan idolatry. And Athens was like, one, one writer says, Athens was a junkyard of idols. 
And Paul's reaction was one of spiritual outrage. Now, what should a follower of Jesus do when she finds herself in the midst of a culture that seems ignorant of the true God, oblivious to God's grace and God's truth, and disinterested in learning about Him? You know what that believer ought to do? Take heart. Take heart, because if Paul could find God in that idolatrous culture of Athens, then maybe we can find God in our culture today. And we not only want to find God, we want to point people to God. So let's look at this passage. This is a great passage. Acts 17. Let's begin with verses 16 to 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So here's Paul, right? Going to the Jewish people, the religious people in the synagogues, but not just confining his ministry there. He's also out there in the marketplace. And the Bible says day after day, he's out in the marketplace, just talking, discussing, sharing the good news of Jesus with anybody who happens to be there. Now, verse 18, philosophers Philosophers come. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, I'll say more about these in a, in a few minutes, but, but these were the two major philosophical schools in Greece at the time, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And they hear Paul talking about this new teaching that's new to them, and they start to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They think that Paul is teaching about two gods. You know, in in Greek uh, mythology and Greek religion, they had many gods, right? And so they think Paul is teaching about two new gods, a a male god named Jesus and a a female god named Anastasis. Anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection. So they're totally confusing Paul's message, but when they hear Paul talking about Jesus and the resurrection, they're thinking male God named Jesus, female God named Anastasis, resurrection, right? So they say, well, Paul seems to be speaking, uh, teaching about foreign gods, new foreign gods, new to us, but they say something that's kind of derogatory. What is this babbler trying to say? And, and, and that, that word, you know, it literally means... Seed picker. And the image here is, you know, like uh, sparrows picking at seeds. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, those who go through garbage. And so when they call him a seed picker, um, a babbler, it's like saying, you know, he's just somebody who picks up leftovers and trash and he tries to make something out of it. It's not a very, you know, um, complimentary term at all. Uh, some of the other Bible translations, I, I looked this up, what do they use if they don't say the word babbler? How do they translate that word? Uh, one translation says, who, parrot. Who, what is this parrot doing? Like, just somebody who just mimics other people, right? Doesn't have anything uh, good to say about himself. Uh, one says, this fast talker. What is this fast talker trying to say? Another translator says, uh, translation says, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? None of these are positive terms. My favorite one is the message, you know, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible. He says, uh, what is this airhead trying to say? So, so these are not good terms. Now, what I want you to see here <clears throat> is that Paul uh, is not deterred. So they say, uh, what is this babbler trying to say? 
And others say he seems to be advocating foreign gods like the God Jesus and God resurrection, Anastasis. And then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of Areopagus where they, saw, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So here, here's the situation. Athens was a very learned city. It's an intellectual se center, a cultural center. And a bunch of people like to just sit around and talk about, oh, what's the latest? They're just gossiping about the latest fads and the newest teaching and all of that. Now, I want you to see something about finding God in the culture. And this is my first point. Is that although Paul is very upset with what he sees in Athens, and he's spiritually outraged at all this uh, rampant idolatry all around him, he does not withdraw. He does not withdraw from the culture. And I think this is an important lesson uh, those of us need to learn because in a way, we're in the same situation as the Apostle Paul. Or at least our situation is becoming more like his in the sense that maybe there are fewer and smaller and smaller percentage of the population that, that might be uh, true believers and, and followers, devout followers of Jesus. Uh, we're in a situation like his in the sense that there's a lot of idolatry all around us. There's a lot of false religion. And there's a lot of people who don't even believe in God now. So uh, this is what I would say. I, I love this about Paul, and we need to learn this from him. If we are going to engage our culture and find God in our culture, first of all, don't withdraw from the culture. Although it might be tempted, tempting. He doesn't isolate himself into a holy huddle of like-minded believers where he feels safe and secure. Uh, he's out there, he's in the synagogue talking about Jesus, he's out in the marketplace, and he's, he's, he's debating with people, reasoning with people. And, and you know, like remember when Jesus said this, he said, to those who follow him, he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, right? Now salt, we know salt flavors, back then salt was often used as a preservative too, they didn't have ways to refrigerate meat, so they would salt the meat and, you know, dry it out and all of that. So salt flavors, salt preserves, salt makes things better, right? Flavors, preserves, makes things better. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're supposed to make the world a better place, right? You're supposed to preserve the world that seems to be decaying and unraveling and, and moving toward greater violence, that you're supposed to preserve the world and you're supposed to make it better, and maybe add some flavor as well. Now, for that to happen, we all know this, right? The salt has to get out of the salt shaker, right? Now, when you think about the church of Jesus Christ and those who follow him, this is the problem. So often we might be tempted to withdraw from the culture and just stay in our holy huddle and isolate ourselves. We got our own music. We got our own clothes. We got our own books. We got our own stores, you know, and... Um, but the salt has to get out of the salt shaker if it's going to flavor the world and make the world better. So this is what we learn from Paul. He does not withdraw. He's not happy with the way Athens is, but he resists any temptation to withdraw and isolate himself. In fact, Jesus said, not only are you the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And so he says, don't hide your light. You know what light's supposed to do? Light is supposed to penetrate and push back the darkness. And Jesus says, I'm sending you into the world to be the light of the world. You, you penetrate and push back the darkness, but that means you've got to encounter the darkness. Sometimes it's going to be messy. You're going to rub shoulders with people that don't agree with you and maybe even ridicule your beliefs, but he says, don't withdraw from the culture. They may criticize you. They may call you a babbler, a seed picker, an airhead, whatever it is. Don't be deterred. 
Press on forward and don't withdraw from the culture. Now, here's the second thing I learned about this, about finding God in culture. Uh, don't just condemn the culture. I know this is very popular among Christians. We, we see the world going to hell in a handbasket. We see increasing violence. We see increasing godlessness. We see uh, decreasing church attendance. And, and the temptation is just to condemn the culture. And, and, and we, we just become known as negative people. Some people, when they think of Christians, they can't think of what we're for. All they can think of is what we're against, right? They think we're against all these things. Don't just condemn the culture. Here's what happened with Paul. Verse 22. Um, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. They bring him to the Areopagus. Uh, and the Areopagus is this, you can go to Greece today, and you go to Athens, and then uh, there's a hill uh, the, called the Acropolis, and on the top of that hill is the Parthenon, right? And then just to the west of the Acropolis is this smaller, lower hill, which is called the Areopagus. It can be translated Mars Hill. But the Areopagus was an elevated, open-air-style uh, site that was just west of the Acropolis, and it was a place where it was large enough where they could have uh, Senate meetings, they could have public debates. So they take Paul over there. And rather than just condemning the culture... Paul has something positive to say. First thing he says is, people of Athens, I could see that you're very religious. <sighs> yeah, we are, right? Uh, so here's what he says, uh, verse 22 and 23. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, right? Your temples, your shrines, your altars, your statues. I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. One translation I read said, it, the inscription said, to the God that nobody knows. So you are ignorant, Paul says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Well, that's strange, right? And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Why would idolatrous people have one of their idols or one of their altars? And, you know, some of them have names of their gods and all that. They had a whole pantheon of gods. Why would they make one to, to an unknown god? And apparently this is what's going on. Is that if, if you're, like, coming up with all these gods, you know how they have different gods of the ocean, god of nature, god of the storms and all that, right? So they're just trying to cover all their bases. Like, wow, did we forget any god? Uh, you know, because we really want to be safe and we really want to have a good harvest and we want everything to go well. So, it's like, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe we did. Let's just make one that's called to the unknown God. That way we cover all our bases. So this is what I want you to see about Paul. <clears throat> not only does he not withdraw from the culture, but he doesn't condemn the culture either. He actually finds something good that he affirms. You know, like sometimes the speakers, when they first start, especially when the, it's a new audience for them, they'll say things that are very complimentary to the audience, like, wow, it's really great to see you guys here. You're, you're looking good. Thanks for coming. Uh, I've been looking forward to this opportunity because I, I heard that you're a really sharp group and, you know, really eager to learn. And, you know, and so sometimes speakers, they just start with all this praising of their audience, right? Well, Paul does a little bit of that. He says, men of Athens, people of Athens, I can see that you're very religious. I've been, I've been around. I've been walking the streets here. I've been observing your city. I can see that you're very religious. So he's not just condemning. Uh, 
And he's going to be at the Areopagus. Now, what this would be, this is like a, a council of philosophers. So he's not on trial here. This, this is not a group that has the authority to com- convict him of a crime or anything like that. But what they are is they're a gathering of philosophers that, that love to hear teaching and debate teaching and, and discuss ideas. And then they could sort of pronounce their assessment on whether this is a good teaching or whether this is worth hearing or something like that. Well, they're intrigued by Paul's apparently new teaching, so they invite him to come and, uh, you know, he's kind of debating and all that. <clears throat> so I, I think we might say these are sort of like Paul's peers. He, Paul is a scholar, and these are scholars. And um, these are kind of like scholarly foes. They want to debate together, and, and they're, they're not so much hostile toward him as just intellectually curious. And they want to review Paul's teaching and then give their assessment. So Paul starts out, he affirms them. I can see you're very religious. Uh, he finds a, a common point of contact uh, to an unknown God. I saw there, you've already got this altar to an unknown God. Uh, rather than just condemning them, he says, let me tell you about that God. I know that God, right? So don't just condemn the culture. Here's the third point I want to make. Don't withdraw from the culture. Don't just condemn the culture. Third thing I want to say about this, the third thing I learned from Paul here is find ways to engage the culture. Find ways to engage the culture. Much of it, like Paul, it may upset you. It goes against your beliefs and your values. But find ways to engage the culture. Here's what Paul does. After he says, I'm going to tell you about God, verse 24, he starts to talk about that God. First thing he wants to say is God is the creator. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And from one man, presumably that's about Adam and Eve, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's a quote from one of, the, uh, one of the Greek philosophers. In him we live and move and have our being. And then as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul is showing here that he, he understands their culture. He engages their culture. He's read their books, right? And then uh, verses 29. Uh, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by human design and skill. See how much he, he's coming against idolatry. He affirms what he can, which is that they are religious. They're hungry for God. But he also speaks against idolatry here and about the futility of idolatry. Don't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And repent simply means to turn around, to turn your life around, to change your mind in a way that changes your life. For he has set a day, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, see, so it's like a funnel. It's now narrowing down to the message about Jesus. So I want you to think about how Paul engaged the culture. He seeks to understand the culture, first of all, right? And this is always important, like, you know, we also kind of live in a foreign culture if, if we're followers of Jesus, and increasingly this culture seems to be becoming f- foreign and, and maybe even hostile toward people who are serious about following Jesus. First thing Paul does 
He doesn't withdraw. He doesn't condemn. You know what he does? He tries to understand the culture. He tries to learn about the culture, right? He's observing carefully. He's listening. You know, like at Jubilee Reach, they always say, when we go into a neighborhood, we want to help people. The first thing you do is you don't help them, and you don't teach them, and you don't devise programs for them. The first thing you do, you listen, you love, and you learn. Right? This is what missionaries have to do when they go into a foreign culture. You listen, you love, and you learn. Because if you don't understand these people, how do you know if what you want to do is really helpful, right? Listen, love, and learn. Another thing I learned from Jubilee Reach, they say, we want to come alongside people and come alongside them in a peer relationship, P-E-E-R, right? It's an acronym. And it goes like this. First thing you do, if you want to come alongside people, whether you're an evangelist or you're a missionary or you're just a Christian in a workplace where there's not too many Christians or you're going to school in a public school where, where you might be in the minority because of your faith and your convictions about the Lord, uh, the first thing you do <clears throat> is just presence. Just be present, right? Just be with people. Hang out. Be present, build relationships, be present. That's the P in peer relationships. Then the first E is not only are you present, but you're empathizing. Right? Empathizing means I'm going to try to understand your situation from your perspective. Right? I don't just say, oh, don't feel bad that your parent died. That happens to everybody. Everybody's going to die anyway. That's not empathy, right? Empathy says, you know, wow, that must really hurt. I'm so sad for you, you know? So if we're going to help people, I want you to think about this, or if we're going to connect with the culture, especially if we're going to point people to God in our culture, doesn't it start here? Just presence and empathy, right? Listen, love, and learn. And then uh, when we've really done a good job of building a relationship through presence and empathy, then we have an opportunity to offer the second E, which is encouragement, right? We can encourage people, but you try to encourage people too early and they get resentful. You know what I mean? It's like, if somebody loses a, a loved one <clears throat> and you care about the person who's grieving and so you come in and say, oh, don't feel bad, they're now in a better place. Trying to be helpful, but really not, right? Or, or, or you say, oh, every cloud has a silver lining. Or, you know, uh, man, the worst one I've ever heard is, uh, I, know, I know you're sad because you lost your loved one, but I guess God needed them more in heaven. I, think, ugh, I don't think that's theologically correct. <laughs> and I definitely don't think it's pastorally helpful. But you know what I mean? A lot of times we just say stuff because we want to be encouraging, we want to be helpful, we want to be comforting. But before we say anything, you know what we ought to do? Just listen. Just come alongside people. Give them our presence and our empathy. And then maybe we will knowing the situation and knowing what they're going through and feeling what they're feeling, then maybe we have something encouraging to say. So presence, empathy, then encouragement. And then the R at the end of that word peer stands for resource. Resource means, you know, maybe we can help them. Maybe, you know, here's a book that you can read that might help or here's a message to listen to or, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, encourage you to go on this website where you're going to find some resources to help you get through this tough time you're in. Or, you know, uh, I want to invite you, I want to introduce you to my friend because they know a lot about this area that you're struggling in. Maybe it's financial planning or it's about estate planning or it's about selling your house or something. But we can offer people resources, <clears throat> which could be a book, uh, a cassette tape. No, not a cassette tape. <laughs> you know what I mean? A message. <laughs> Uh, a website, a magazine article, 
uh, introduce them to a person, to an organization, to a program. Right? We can offer resources to help people, but not too early, right? Presence, empathy, then we can give some encouragement, and then we can help people. See, so we want to you know, come alongside people, and we want to connect with people, and we want to find ways to engage the culture. This is what I want to say about the Apostle Paul. Doesn't the Apostle Paul model this for us? That before he says anything, he's, he's studying Athens. What are they all about? What are all these buildings? What are all these altars? He's reading the names on the, on the altars and the shrines and the idols. And, and that's how he found that one says to an unknown God. So he's trying to understand the culture. And then he's trying to find ways to connect with the culture and engage the culture. Like, for example, that's why we're doing this movie series. In two weeks, we're going to start this series called God and the Movies. And you think, why are we doing a series about God and the Movies? And on the back of that card, you can see these movies. Pirates of the Caribbean, Wonder Woman, Transformers, Cars 3, Spider-Man, War of the Planet of the Apes. Six great Christian movies. <laughs> now, as far as I know, none of these are Christian movies, right? But these are the kind of movies that are going to make millions and millions of dollars and millions of people are going to go see them this summer because they're summer blockbusters, right? So we thought, well, can we take these movies, which are part of our culture, and rather than just withdrawing or rather than just condemning, can we find some way to use these movies to engage our culture? And that's what we're going to try to do in this series that starts in, in two weeks. Uh, we're going to try to take something that's already on many people's minds and say, you know what? There's some spiritual themes involved in that. Like, for example, a lot of these movies, especially these uh, superhero movies, a lot of it is about uh, adequacy and inadequacy, right? Sometimes it's about finding your purpose and your destiny, your calling in life. Uh, a lot of times it's about the battle between good and evil, right? These are, these are really spiritual themes. So we can talk about it. We'll try to talk about it on Sundays during the series. But, but I want you to think about this. Maybe you can... Use something in the culture, whether it's a movie or a song or a TV show or, you know, a concert or something that's going on at work. Maybe you can try to engage your culture. First, you've got to listen, love, and learn. You've got to be present and come alongside people, empathize with them, and then and ask the Lord, Lord, how can I bring an encouraging word? Sometimes we cannot speak into someone's life helpfully, helpfully, in the, until we've listened to them and really try to understand them first. That's really important, right? So here's what Paul does. He finds ways to engage his culture. Now, he understands that, uh, not his culture, but the Athenian culture, and he understands that as he speaks there at the Areopagus, this, this open-air uh, meeting place, that he's got his, in his audience the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers, right? And they are not the same. These are actually the two leading philosophical schools in Greek culture at the time, but they're very different. Now, uh, Epicureans are basically people that would believe that uh, we don't know if there's a God. Some of them believe that God is unknowable. He's unknown, and some of them believed he's unknowable. Uh, some of them didn't believe in any God at all, but if they, if they did believe in God, usually Epicureans were what's called deists. You know what a deist is? A deist is somebody who believes there's a God, and maybe God launched the whole thing and set it in motion, but, the, but God is no longer involved in the world. So it's like, you know, God created this watch and then he just left it on its own, right? So deists don't, they don't pray, they don't worship, they don't ask what God's will is. It's just like, if there is a God, he's, he's irrelevant, he's removed, he's not involved in my life. The other group was called Stoics, 
And Stoics, on the other hand, believed that God was near. They believed that God was so near that they believed that God is in everything and everything is God. They're called pantheists, right? Pantheist. Pan means all. Theist means God. Right? They're people that believe not only in God and not only in the nearness of God, but uh, pantheists really cannot make any separation, any distinction between the creator and the creation. And so have you ever met anybody that says, oh, you know what I believe? I believe I'm God and you're God and every, this chair is God. And it's like, uh, you can believe that, but I don't know if, you, if it really makes much sense. And I don't know if anybody can really live that way. But if you're a Stoic, that, they, that's what they kind of believe. Like They believe strongly in what's called the imminence of God, the nearness of God. But God was so near that God is not... Like, see, we believe... You know how the Bible says, in the stars his handiwork I see, right? The mountains and the hills declare the glory of God. Now, this is what we believe from the Bible. That the creation was created by God... And it displays his wonder, his beauty, his majesty, sometimes his mystery, right? So we could say, we don't worship the creation, but the creation can point us to God, right? That's why some people say, you know, I feel closest to God when I'm in nature, when I'm looking at a majestic waterfall, or when I'm standing on a cliff overlooking the ocean, or when I'm hiking in the mountains, I feel close to God. Why? Because I'm close to God's creation, right? I see his, uh, his divine attributes expressed through his creation but there's a distinction between the creator and his creation okay the stoics the pantheists they can't make that distinction so i want you to think about this here's what paul says first of all god is the creator the god who made the world and everything in it he's the lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands he's not served by human needs as if he needed anything Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So in other words, this is, you know what Paul's doing? He's painting a picture here of a God who is transcendent. He is sovereign. He's overall creation. In fact, I think in the next verse or two, he's going to tell us that this God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And this God marked out for each nation their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. And as we think we're in control, but really God is in control. This is a picture of a God who is absolutely in control. He's sovereign. He's majestic. He's the creator. He's the Lord all overall. He's transcendent. So that's different than the Stoics. The Stoics believe in God, but they believe God is in everything and is everything. That God is not the Lord over creation. That God is the same as creation, right? For the Stoics, if, if God is, you know, you have a pantheistic view, God is in everything and God is everything, you cannot, that's not a personal God. You cannot have a relationship with that God, right? So when Paul says, and he quotes one of their philosophers, uh, in him, in God, you, we live and move and have our being. I think Stoics are going, amen to that, right on, brother, preach it. God is all around, God is imminent, God is near, right? But then Paul says, and he quotes now one of their poets, and we also are his offspring. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. That's a personal God. Idols do not have children. Idols do not have offspring, right? Here when he says, we also are his offspring, he's talking about a personal God who wants a personal relationship with you and me. See, I just want us to understand that whereas the Epicureans believed maybe they believe in God, but God is totally irrelevant and uninvolved, to them Paul wants to say, no, no. 
God is not distant or aloof or silent or removed. In him we live and move and have our being. And God wants to be personally involved with us. We are his offspring. We are his children. And he wants to be in relationship with us. And then to a pantheist who believes that God is everywhere and everything, Paul wants to say, no, God is not the creation. God is the creator. He's the Lord over all. Now, I want you to think about this. In the Christian faith, we have both and we need both. A God who is transcendent and sovereign and all-powerful and mighty, and he's the creator, but he's also near to the brokenhearted. He also has compassion for you. He's also saying uh, in his son Jesus, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And whosoever believeth in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He's, He's a God who is not only transcendent, but he's imminent, he's near, he's personal. See, this is what we need, right? We need a God who's all-powerful, but also personal. We need a God who's transcendent, but also imminent. And you know where you find that? The God of the Bible. And in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wants to say to the Epicureans. You know, the Epicureans, uh, they don't think God's involved with life. They're very materialistic, like a lot of people today. And like a lot of people today, if God's not involved with life, then you just get very materialistic, right? You try to get all the goods you can. The other thing about Epicureans is they thought the highest aim of human existence is personal pleasure, right? Uh, That's kind of what they believe. And so I'm thinking, you know what? I don't think the Epicureans have totally gone away. I think there's some around us today, right? Very materialistic. No, they don't believe there's any higher purpose or meaning to life. So maybe it's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Why not just live to get as much toys as I can? Why not live just to get as much pleasure as I can? Because there's nothing better or higher to live for. And the Apostle Paul would say, well, no, no. You know, that, that's living a meaningless existence. He wants to say, you know what? There is a God who created the world and the universe and the heavens, but he's also the God who wants to be in relationship with you. He is infinite and he's personal. He's transcendent. And he's imminent, right? He's powerful, but he's also intimate. And that's the God we need. So I just want us to see this, that Paul understood his culture and he knew how to engage the culture. And that's what he does here at the Areopagus. So let me tell you one more thing about the Apostle Paul. When he's engaging the culture, he doesn't withdraw from the culture. He doesn't condemn the culture. He finds ways to engage the culture. He understands the culture enough to speak into it. And that's what we have to do as well. For example, in our culture, many people today would say this. Oh, I'm spiritual. I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not religious. Have you heard that? Maybe you've said that. And they, okay, you know, that seems to be a widespread belief in our culture. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. You know what we can do? Rather than withdrawing or condemning, we could engage that. You know what you could say? You could say, well, well, tell me, in your view, what's the difference between religious and being spiritual? It's a good question, right? They may never even thought about it. But, you know, let them talk about it. You're going to learn a lot about them and, and what their view of spirituality is, what they like about spirituality and what they don't like about religion. It's a great question. What's the difference between being religious and being spiritual? And then listen, love, and learn, right? And then you can ask this, after they explain to you about how wonderful it is to be a spiritual person, you could say this, uh, who is the spiritual person that you most admire? 
Who's the spiritual person you most admire? That's a good question. I mean, they may say, oh, it was Jesus, or they may say it was uh, Martin Luther King, or it was Dorothy Day, or it was Mother Teresa, or someone, you know, they may say, you know what, the most spiritual person, the spiritual person I most admire, it was my mom. My mom prayed all the time, and I know she prayed for me. You know? But you're going to learn a lot about a person and what their spiritual views are and where they are spiritually just by those questions, right? Uh, what's the difference between spirituality and religion? Who's the spiritual person that you most admire? And then what are we doing? We're listening, loving, learning, we're seeking to understand, and maybe we're seeing if somehow we can engage what they're saying, right? Um, here's another question. If they know you're a Christian, you could say this. If Christians would really listen, what would you want to tell them? That's a good question, isn't it? Like, who knows what they're going to say, but that's going to be a very insightful answer, right? It's going to tell you a lot about how they view Christianity or even what they know about Christianity. Maybe they have all kinds of baggage. Maybe they say, I grew up in church and I got turned off by whatever, church split, hypocrisy, uh, immorality, or you know, whatever it was. But you're going to learn a whole lot about their spiritual background and maybe where they are today. See, we're just trying to listen, love, and learn and understand so that we can engage the culture rather than backing away because we don't know what to say or rather than withdrawing or rather than just condemning them and, and saying all the things that we disagree with about their viewpoint or their lifestyle, okay? Now, we can do what Paul did here and that's uh, also he invited some next steps. Did you catch that at the end of the passage? Paul invited some next steps. Uh, let me read verses 29 to 31. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill, right? No idolatry. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And to repent means to change your mind in a way that changes your life. It means you can turn around and turn back to God, the one who is your sovereign Lord and creator, who also is the one who is your... Heavenly Father, we are his offspring, right? He now commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. That's Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Invite some next steps. Sometimes we talk about stuff and people are interested. We never tell them a next step. You know, maybe a next step would be, oh, come to our church during the movie series. Or a next step would mean, be, uh, would you like to read the Bible together with me? We can meet once in a while and, and just read the Bible together. Or a next step might be, you know, can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Uh, a next step might be, you know, would you like to read this book uh, by C.S. Lewis or by Tim Keller or something? You know, but think about a next step. How can we help them to take a next step? This is what Paul does. He says, God is wanting everybody right now to repent, which means to turn from your idolatry, forsake it, and turn to God. A change of mind that results in a change of heart. Invite next steps. Now, I want you to notice this about Paul. Everybody did not say, oh, Paul, great message. I believe now, right? You know what the scripture tells us? Some people wrote him off. They laughed when they heard about the, the resurrection of the dead. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Uh, one translation says they just laughed out loud at Paul. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council, the Areopagus, and some of the people became followers of Paul, or, you know, they attached themselves to Paul, and they believed. Among them was Dionysius, who was a member of the council, the Areopagus, and a woman named Demarius, 
and a number of others. So this is what we found with Paul. He did his best, and what he received was a mixed response, right? Some people laughed at him, wrote him off, turned off, walked away. But other people said, you know what? I'm interested. I'd like to hear some more. I'd like to discuss this some more. Can we follow up next week, right? And then there are some people that became believers that day and started their journey with Christ. So I want you to think about the people that are in your life. And, you know, we're not saying everybody's going to respond positively. But I love this about Paul. He did not withdraw. He did not condemn the culture. But he engaged the culture. And then he invited people to take a step toward the Lord. Whatever that might be. Let's meet again. Why don't you come to my church, come to a Bible study, let's go see a movie together, and then let's hear what, the, what our, one of our pastors has to say about that movie, right? Um, you know, come, come to the potluck dinner or something. But encourage people to take a step, because most people, they're not going to come to Christ in one day or one week or maybe even one month, but we can help them along in their journey. As we engage the culture, we can also help people to find God, even in this what sometimes seems like an ungodly culture. Lord, thank you that even though sometimes we get discouraged because much of the cultural momentum seems to be going away from you, we're really being put increasingly in that same situation that the early Christians had, where the vast majority of their culture did not know you or believe in you or love you or follow you. And so, Lord, help us to learn also how we can be good witnesses, wise witnesses, thoughtful and loving witnesses as we understand our culture and find ways to engage it. Lead us forward, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to invite you now to come and partake of communion, which in our Christian culture is really like one of the highest acts of worship. In the communion, we're reminded that in the Last Supper, Jesus spent with his disciples before his betrayal. He took the bread and he broke it. And then as he took the broken bread, he said, this is my body given for you. And in a few short hours, he would be betrayed and tried and tortured and then crucified. And he says, my body's going to be given, but it's not meaningless. It's not, ju not just a tragic miscarriage of justice. I'm giving my life willingly, my body, given for you. He says, take and eat. And then after the supper, he took the, the glass and he says, he took the cup and he says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, the new relationship that you can have with God. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for the sins of many. And then he offered the invitation, take and drink, each one of you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a reminder to us that this whole Christian life thing, it doesn't start with our decision or our will or even our response to God. It starts because God took the initiative in sending his son Jesus. And Jesus was totally proactive and self-giving and he gave his all, his body broken, his blood shed so that you and I could receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so what we do when we partake of communion is we're just acknowledging that. If you believe in Jesus and you accept what he's done for you and, and you, you want to follow him and, and live into the life that he died to give you, then you're invited. You come today. 
and you take a piece of the bread and, and dip it in the juice and, and uh, with gratitude. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for me. And as I come to this table, we can have fellowship. I'm giving my life to you. Just like we sang earlier, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. Have your way in me, Lord. So I want to invite you to come and partake of communion. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to invite you to come up these two inner, inner side aisles. And uh, someone will be up here at the front to guide you. You can kneel or you can stand and uh, take a piece of the, the bread, the wafer. It's, it's gluten-free. <laughs> and, uh, and dip it in and then just partake. And, and just remember that, that Jesus, he paid the ultimate price for you. So live in gratitude, live in grace, and live in submission to him. Okay, will you do that? So just come as you're ready. Come up these two inner aisles. Then you can go back down the middle aisle or the side aisles. We also, okay, this is new. We're, we're going to have people uh, available to pray for you. They'll be standing along the side walls. Um, okay, that's not new. We always do that during communion. Here's what's new. We're going to keep them up there throughout the whole closing worship set. So if you'd like to receive prayer, just go ahead and, and do that. We're trying something new during the 1030 service, and that's that we're going to offer prayer during the whole closing worship set after the message. And you can go and pray anytime that, or receive prayer anytime and then when the service concludes, we're no longer going to offer prayer after service at the 1030 service, okay? Let's pray together. Lord, prepare our hearts. We thank you so much, Lord, that you have extended this incredible invitation to receive your life given for us, your life for our life. And Lord, we uh, want to humble ourselves now and to be in a position to receive, to receive gratefully, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. And as we come to your table, Lord, cleanse us, forgive us, make us new. Lord, when we come to your table too, we're going to lay some burdens right here at your feet. And we thank you, Lord, that you want to bear them with us. Bless our time as we come in Jesus' name.